Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone, Michael Adams here to tell you about some important rugby league events coming up. So RLD listeners in New South Wales and the ACT should be circling your calendars for Tuesday the 24th of September. A couple of can't-miss events. Uh, so firstly, in one that will be very close to the heart of my co-host Andrew Paskin, and many more of you I'm sure, our Rugby League Digest correspondent Dr Guy Hansen will be delivering a lecture at the National Library of Australia in Canberra to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the Raiders' 1989 Grand Final victory. Uh, titled When the Raiders Come to Town, it's a free event beginning at 1230 and you can register now via nla.gov.au. So that's going to be a great afternoon. And that gives you just enough time to hop in the car and head up the Federal Highway back to Sydney, where at 6pm, Bram Dabchek will be delivering the 21st annual Tom Brock Lecture. Bram will be discussing the 40-year history of the Rugby League Players Association, and this lecture will be followed by a panel discussion involving the RLPA's Clint Newton and Ian Prendergast. This is also a free event, which will be held at Peter Shamaris L Club, and you can register at tombrock.com.au. So Andrew and I will both be there, so get your tickets now, and make sure you let us know if you're coming along. We want to see as many RLD listeners there as possible. So for anyone who doesn't know, Tom Brock was a passionate South Sydney man who became their official historian and archivist, and over the years maintained an extensive collection of rugby league books, periodicals, and more. Uh, When he died in 1997, this collection was retained, along with what became the Tom Brock Bequest. And it's from this gift that the annual Tom Brock Lecture was born, along with an annual Tom Brock Scholar. And this year's Tom Brock Scholar is Joe Gorman, and from this scholarship we have the new book, Heartland, How Rugby League Explains Queensland. So we've already had multiple listeners tweet at us about this book, uh, and also the corresponding article in The Guardian, which you can find through our Twitter feed. Uh, I've ordered my copy of the book, and I can't wait to get into it. So it touches on a lot of the same content we discussed in our Birth of the Broncos episode and goes in much deeper from there. So I'm really excited about this book, specifically for the content, which I wish was available to me a year ago, and more generally just at the fact that a book like this has been written and published. And the best way to see more like it is to vote with your wallet. So I'd urge anyone listening to go out and grab a copy immediately. It's available at all the usual places and is an absolute must. So that's Joe Gorman, Heartland, How Rugby League Explains Queensland. Okay, on with the show. It was Thursday the 30th of March 1995. On the 14th floor of the Goldfields building overlooking Sydney Harbour, the inner circle of Super League conspirators met in the offices of Atanaskovich Hartnell solicitors. Ken Cowley, John Rebo and Lachlan Murdoch had gathered to discuss their next moves in what was at that point a covert operation to launch a rebel competition. This cover would be exposed in mere hours when at 6pm that night the ARL would serve legal papers challenging the loyalty agreement signed by the 20 clubs. It was a clear signal of News Limited's intent. The opening shot had been fired, and it was the shot heard around the rugby league world. The next 48 hours would see a swarming chaos, at the end of which the game was permanently altered. This is part one of Blitzkrieg, the seventh chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War.
Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? I'm fantastic, mate. How are you? I'm all right. So the nerves are okay? Uh, no, they're not. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm feeling very nervous about this whole acrimony. We're really getting into it. So as we start, I just wanted to break down what is going to be coming up over the next few weeks. So you heard in the intro, this is part one of a two-part episode where we're looking at the April Fool's Day raid. So in this episode, we're going to break down the Super League concept a bit more and then look at those opening moves. So we basically pick up the story from John Rebo leaving the meeting with Rupert Murdoch on the 23rd, go through to the 30th or 31st. And then next week, the conclusion of Blitzkrieg will be that April Fool's Day weekend and the chaos that ensued. Awesome, man. It's I mean, it's, we say it every week, but <laughs> I'm more apt to date there could not be. And one of the things I've really thought about a lot in preparing this series is that it really runs the risk of being broken-backed. Even though Super League, the Super League season didn't happen until 1997, this is really like the climax. Yeah. This is the worst part about it for me, though, is we had to wait a year in limbo. Yeah. The dead year. Yeah. You know what I think about 96? Oh, top the top of my head. What I think about 96 is that awful ARL game on Sega Mega Drive. <laughs> you ever play that? Oh, no. I think I played the ET one. Well, that was early. <laughs> yeah. but I, was, I waited for this Mega Drive game. Like, yeah. like I was talking about it for five years before it was even made. Well, they should, they've got to make one, right? Kid comes out, great cover, worst gameplay ever. It just summed up 96. Was it licensed? Yeah, but it, was, it could have been the best thing ever, and it was terrible. And then, like, just... All through 96, we're waiting there in limbo for Super League. What's going to happen? Terrible year of football. Yeah. Well, in my head, I think 1996, I thought it was all over. So I, I was like living in this blissful state. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but as I said, April Fool's Day this weekend, so I, I don't think it's overstating it to say this is the most dramatic and influential weekend in rugby league history. You got to admire, well, you don't have to admire it, I suppose, but you got to recognize the balls of it. It just went, okay, well, five year loyalty agreements, <laughs> go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to be reckoning with all of that. So, as I said, this chapter centers on the raid. The next chapter will look at the ARL response. And from there, we've got the next seven chapters directly concerning the events of April Fool's Day, 1995. So, we've got a lot of muck to sort through over the next couple of months uh and speaking of wading through muck I, I just want to add a disclaimer that while i was working through my sources in putting together this episode i found some glaring inconsistencies in who did what where and then sometimes that's just one person's account versus another and you have to weigh up which one you want to believe Sometimes there's inconsistent accounts within the one book. Uh, so this is part of the reason why we're coming to you late this week in trying to untangle all of this and get as close to the truth as we possibly can. It's, it's When you look at it objectively, it's one of those situations. I'm going to go a little bit high end here, but uh, the Bin Laden uh, assassination just happened. Okay. Yeah. It just happened. And then everyone went, all right, move on. Yeah. Like Super League just destroyed the game. And we all went, oh, there's a couple of little books, but, you know, don't really want to talk about it. So let's move on. And no one ever sort of looked into it. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's the, the whole reason why we're doing this. But now I realize that I might be slightly in over my head. <laughs> so as I said, accuracy is the most important thing to us in doing this show. But undoubtedly, there are going to be some errors from time to time. Anytime we do uncover one, we'll issue 
an errata. And if you do hear something that you think is not right, let us know. Send us an email to the rugby league digest at gmail.com with some credible sources, and uh, I will happily issue retractions or corrections. So the truth is more important than our egos. I only respect two sources Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, and on that note, I, I wanted to issue an erratum from chapter five when I misspoke and misquoted Ian Heads as saying that Rugby League in Australia was founded at the George Hotel. Uh, of course, I meant to say Bateman's Hotel on George Street. I don't think even Ian Heads could hit a two iron from Huddersfield to Phillips Street. <laughs> uh, so anyone who did pick up on that, um, that was an idiotic uh, mistake to make. You're under a lot of pressure. I'll give you, I'll give you a pass on that. <laughs> so as, as I said, we're, we're going to start this episode with looking at the what came to be known as and will be referred to by us as the vision. So before we get into the events of April Fool's Day, it's necessary to break down in a bit more detail what Super League was all about. So this podcast isn't meant to be an entry-level discussion of rugby league. We assume a lot of prior knowledge from our listeners. And so along the way, various names and events have and will continue to be taken as assumed knowledge. Uh, but that being said, I don't know if we've adequately summed up what Super League meant, what changes it made from the status quo, and what all the fuss was about. So I just want to spend some time breaking down the concept, what was involved and what it meant. Uh, and as a result of that, in some cases, it's been necessary to include developments that were finalized after the point in the story that we're talking about chronologically. This has been done only when it's in line with the established vision that was sold to players and clubs and only when it, it's not a big enough change to warrant its own segment in a future episode. So for instance, the English Rugby League signing with Super League, that wasn't in the battle plan going into April's Fool's Day weekend, uh, but that gets its own episode. Big moment in the whole thing. Exactly. So we're not going to do that short shrift. So we'll be talking about that in a couple of months time. Uh, but let's start with it. And as we start, another kind of disclaimer is that I'm sure some people are calling out, why haven't you talked about Star League yet? I was thinking the same thing. So Star League, for anyone who doesn't know, Star League was actually what Super League was billed at when, when it came out in April. That was going to be the name that the competition ran under the contracts that were signed by players and coaches were star league contracts do you think it would have got any traction with that name it's a horrendous name isn't, isn't it, it? Uh, i think the super league as a name trumps that by a long way but to me star league is totally in line with the marketing of super league yeah. which we've had multiple disagreements about but to me star league like those jerseys those logos like to me like star league fits perfectly with that it sounds like a shoddily run talent agency it's funny that you say that because <laughs> the next words out of my mouth were going to be low rent. <laughs> so I, I didn't didn't want to get bogged down in talking about Super League, then Star League, then Super League again. So for the purposes of this show, we're just going to refer to the whole situation as Super League. But let's just talk about that Star League a bit. This is another occasion where I want to appeal to the knowledge of our listeners because I've hit an absolute research dead end on the derivation of Star League and when it changed back. It was based on the um, Asian pay TV, wasn't it? Well, well, that's one version. But then I saw an article in the Herald in April 1995 where player manager Wayne Beavis was said to have registered the name Super League in July of 1994. And Super League then had to 
change the name because of that. Is that correct? I, I really, really don't think it is. Like, the, I'll, I'll just read part of how it was written in the paper. It said, Wayne Beavis registered the business name Super League last July, admitting I was just being smart. The move forced News Limited to rename their breakaway competition Star League. And then it goes on to say that Ken Cowley had said that he bought the name back, but Wayne Beavis is threatening legal action because that's not the case. But I, I've looked for you know any court records of action being taken, nothing. Any subsequent articles in the paper nothing Wayne Beavis hasn't commented on it and this is the guy that has stated that he wished the Super League war would never end for all it lined his pockets <laughs> so I can't see him not bragging about it more if that was the case does anyone know Wayne out there and is, is there any listeners that knows knows Wayne or is affiliated with him can uh, drop us a line yeah so I'd really like to get to the bottom of that because um, I, I don't know and the whole time it, it's very murky on when it changed so we know that the contract signed in April of 1995 were Star League contracts. We know that Star League was a subsidiary of News Limited, which was to be the company that payment was made for the television rights. So there was obviously some corporate reasoning for it as well. In the original court case, Star League were listed as one of the applicants, yet in the appeal, there's no mention of Star League as an appellant. There's Super League plus all these other uh, presumably shelf companies with really generic names, but no mention of Star League. Yeah, odd. So it was still used as Star League in February of 1996. By October, it's it's just wiped from the record. <laughs> and, and as I said, I've, I've come up with a dead end. So please, uh, if anyone ha can shed some insight on that, would love to hear it. So let's get into Super League as we will refer to it from here on out. And I, I just want to talk about that concept of the vision and how it was sold and what we thought of it at the time. So when we say that, the vision, what do you think of, Andrew? Immediately, I think of the ambush on the footy show of John Rebo. That was compelling television, but what I thought at the time was disgusting. That's what I think of first comes to mind. But now when I look at it in more depth, I think that was the era in corporate speak where vision statements become popular. There's a lot of that emptiness to the vision, but I want to touch on the first part of what you've said, because as someone who at the time was very ARL biased, I, I just remember the, the vision was something to be derided. And at the time, I knew very little about the details of that vision and what Super League was, only that, you know, it was something that I was against. I think the reason it became something to be derided was because of the footy show discussion where a understandably flustered John Rebo was mentioning going to China. Mm. I think the China uh, lion was the nail in the uh, vision's <laughs> coffin. Yeah, and, and on that, I, I want to use Ken Arthurson's quote on that. This was from his book. The Super League vision bullshit is one of the great red herrings of Australian sport. All this crap about taking the game to the world. The fact is the game was already out there in a strong way via pay TV. And do you reckon people in China or plenty of other places are going to be hanging there waiting until they get Adelaide versus Townsville on their screens? It was rubbish, a blind to disguise the true motive, which was to secure quality sporting fodder for Murdoch's Foxtel pay TV network. I think he's pretty much on the money, but I will say that there is a uh, quite a big Rams following in the Guangzhou province. <laughs> okay, yes, he, he's right that it was... It was bullshit. It was obviously it was about Foxtel more than it was about taking the game. I don't to the think world. it is bullshit. I think Rebo believed that, and I think that was just a bit of hyperbole. 
with the China bit. He'd taken it at the world. He genuinely believed it. That was definitely part of the Super League pitch, and we're going to get into that a, a bit later in the episode. But the main thing I wanted to say about this is I, I think Arthurson's right on the true motives of Super League, but to be so instantly dismissive of essentially his own product, his own game. That's the attitude that really rubbed me the wrong way, the way Fatty in particular was piling on his old mate on the footy show and everybody in the game for that matter. But it's easy to put someone down. He's having an idea. Where are your ideas to fight this uh, evil doing, you know? Yeah. And just think about our little growing listenership. We've gotten emails from the US, from Switzerland, people who have just happened to discover rugby league at some point in time, yeah, yeah. become fans. And, and that's with no targeted effort. That's just by chance. Well, this like, is what my, my dream is to have the vision because the game is that good. It's like ice hockey. I've been watching a bit of ice hockey lately on KO Sports. Can't follow the puck, obviously, but I like it. It's, it's like rugby league on ice. Mm. And so it's like, I'm into that a little bit now. It's like, yeah. I'm sure the Canadians will love rugby league. <laughs> Go and Wolfpack. So re- regardless of whether they were going to get the, the global reach that they were selling, uh, there, there's something... That that sits really uneasily when you're the boss of rugby league and you're just mocking the con- the very concept. Disappointing is a word for it. Yeah, but this was definitely part of the ARL's PR campaign and you've got to say the ARL easily won this aspect of the PR war to the point that later in 1995, probably soon after that footy show debacle, the word vision was banned from any Super League <laughs> like memos or marketing. So let's talk about those changes in a bit more detail, what Super League would have meant. So a, a few concepts to get into, uh, and these are concepts that we'll be drilling into in more detail at various points over the course of the season. So the big one was ownership, with the game to essentially be owned, controlled and run by News Limited. So this was obviously the most contentious issue to the whole thing. So basically clubs were to become franchises with News Limited to own 51% of the clubs and have a controlling share. This led to certain clubs backing out or you know expressing reservations. So North Sydney, for example, were considering a Super League approach and this was something they couldn't consider. This was the point in the war after New Zealand, who originally were very exclusionary, were at a position where they had to take anyone they could get. But so Norths were considering joining, but that ownership structure was was not working for them. The only thing North should have been considering was an arborist. <laughs> but again, with the tree jokes. But I was like, at the time, right, I was like... Well, it must be 97 when I was doing that four-unit business. I thought, I thought I was the man. I knew all about business. And I thought, this would be great. That we News Limited will take over. It'll be all streamlined and efficient. But looking at it now, the club still would have been a disaster. No crowd members, et cetera. They would have just like shut the thing down. And and this is the this is where it really, uh, when the vision meets reality, you start to see a disconnect. So News Limited from the start said, we don't want to own the game what we're going to do is we're going to set this up. Everyone's going to make a lot of money and then you can buy your stake back because we're going to make, in five years, we're going to be like, have made all this profit and you can have your club back and we're all going to, you know, make millions of dollars every year. So it was really banking on being profitable from the start. And it was this five-year window where clubs would get control of their team back. I mean, in the history of rugby league, the word profit has not come up very often. (laughs) And for good reason, this is the first time that profit was an actual concern of the clubs where before it was this all in kind of like just we're just about the football team. So it was something new for rugby league. But, but I asked you even about private ownership. We look at Russell Crowe, you know, a great New Zealander, <laughs> a great Australian and global superstar. 
putting all his might behind South Sydney, and they're still just scraping along. Mm. So if he can't turn a profit in Sydney... Um, And then you do have the argument that this was going to be a professionally run, streamlined competition, and you know maybe it would have worked. But you could see from the vitriol from April Fool's Day onwards that the public were not going to get behind this. (laughs) Not at all. The other aspect of the ownership was the idea of shelf companies. Are you familiar with this term? I am, yeah. So I, I wasn't until I started reading a lot about Super League and the amount of times the, the phrase $2 shelf company came up, <laughs> uh, I, I had to really brush up on it. So basically it's a registered company name that doesn't have any assets or business. It's it's just a, a registered name that you could then use for various aspects of your business. Does that sum it up? Pretty much. I actually met a guy from the Cayman Islands the other day, an actual resident. Really? Yeah, <laughs> amazing. So this Star League Proprietary Limited, that's an example of a shelf company that News Limited set up to run Super League and through which the payment would be filtered. And for whatever business reasons, that makes sense. Again, not my strength, and I'm, I'm sure it's not you know very interesting to a lot of our listeners, but it's funny how often this came up in the ARL's pitch against Super League. <laughs> so this quote by Ian Roberts is typical of the way the ARL was talking about News Limited's corporate structure. And Manly, not long after I signed with Super League, we had these two nights when Graham Richardson came and spoke to us and made out as if Super League were all a pack of bastards. And then it was a shelf company and this, that and the other. And Alan Jones was in the press talking about how, you know, oh, do they realise they're not signing with News Limited? They're signing with a $2 shelf company. (laughs) And then I just love the idea of all these footy types talking as if they knew what a shelf company was. So um, this quote from Gordon Tallis's book, I, I love. I went to see Jeff Carr to give him the last option. When I told him what they'd offered, he said, mate, we can't afford you, but listen, this Super League thing is a $2 shelf company. They'll never pay you. I said thanks and nodded my head as if I didn't have a worry in the world and got straight on the phone. George, I said uh, to George Mimas, his agent, it's a $2 shelf company. They'll never pay me. <laughs> George said to relax, I guarantee you'll get paid, he said. <laughs> Like News Limited's going to defraud 500 players and then abscond with the money. You'll never catch us. (laughs) It's one thing for like footy players and coaches to to think that way. But you had all these stories like in in the newspapers about the tax ramifications and, you know, Cayman Islands stuff and like the ATOs watching, watching closely. It's like, why would News Limited institute some tax rot in the most publicized <laughs> like contract dispute in the country? The, the best bet we just glossed over was the fact that Graham Richardson was coming in to like, you know, speak of how immoral it was, you know. <laughs> so a, a lot more Richo talk over the next few weeks. <laughs> Um, so that became the the real pitch from the ARL that this was all shady dealings and you know they weren't to be trusted and and again it's it's an area where I think they really uh, did some damage on the PR front. Uh, so that was ownership. The next part of the vision I want to talk about was what we touched on earlier the, that global vision, the the global audience. So. As I said, at this stage, taking over the English game wasn't part of the strategy and that global vision predominantly meant access to Murdoch's global TV network, extensive coverage, especially in Asia, also the US and elsewhere. Uh, But interestingly, Ken Cowley's February slideshow did include the idea of a Euro League. So at some point, this was always a part of the plan, but I think it would have been get the Australian competition established 
and go from there. I don't think anyone was planning what eventuated with the English league later in April. It's incredible that it didn't put the nail in the ARL coffin when New Zealand and, Super, and English Super League joined. Yeah, yeah. And incredible. Again, the resilience of rugby league people. <laughs> so this global vision, we, we've talked about the bona fides of it. Uh, and John Rebo, as much as you want to say he truly believed it, I, th- I think he did really oversell it, like talking about this, you know, 100 million person viewership hyperbole on both sides yeah he's yeah. he started it but with, with, yeah with, without a doubt but um any, anytime people talk about getting asia there's always like something slightly racist about it it's always like you know oh there's a billion of them we only need like a couple of million absolutely uh and if nothing else just think of the appeal in terms of ego stroking the players you know you've got super league saying you know we're going to have you on bedroom walls around the world and you've got the arl saying you know like we're losing the riverina to aussie rules (laughs) (laughs) the bloody country it's like been dying for 100 120 years and despite what you want to think about the reality of it this was one of the easiest parts of the pitch to sell because you did have Rupert Murdoch's global network. Look, I think if if there wasn't the Civil War, if it was just signed up for, I think by now we'd be getting inroads into that. Seriously. I mean, we'd be in uh, Beijing, but but basketball is that big in China now. Well, it just goes back to what we've said a bunch of times already, and I'm sure everyone will get tired of hearing us say over the next year or however long this takes us to get through it, but just imagine if they sorted it out in February and came to some arrangement to get the, the Murdoch Empire as well as ARL control and, you know, every party benefiting from it. It reminds me of a hot chocolate song, Everyone's a Winner. (laughs) So speaking of Everyone's a Winner, partnerships was the other big selling point of the vision. And this is perhaps the most utopian aspect of of the whole thing. So I've already talked extensively about the fact that it was to be fewer teams. So originally it was a 12-team pitch uh, after February where they knew the lay of the land a bit more and who was in and who was out. They reduced it to 10. And as the season went on, they were really scrambling to get up to 10. When I heard 10, I was like, ooh, I was all on board for 12. I'm like, yep, this is the way forward. When I heard 10, I'm thinking, this has got a bit of Disneyland to it. There's a bit of Michael Mouse (laughs) about this. So as we've talked about, the existing ARL clubs were to be shareholders in these Super League franchises. And the key selling point was that everyone were, were going to be stakeholders and everyone was going to be have equal say. And this came down to rule changes, which were going to be coach-driven and with, with input from everyone. <laughs> Think about that. Look what we're dealing with now <laughs> with, with the coaches is strangling the life out of the game. Let's let the coaches drive the rules. Uh, and then the other thing is that they thought because of this, because everyone, you know, w- was drawing from the same pot and we, you know, they were all holding a piece of a franchise that if everyone pulled together would make them all a shitload of money. There was this idea from news that the clubs would then see that as their own best interest and work together. That's beyond utopia. That's like fanciful. So uh, so, so Tim Sheens was, was one who drank the Kool-Aid on that aspect of it. I'll, I'll just read this. I may be fooling myself. I'm a bit gullible that way perhaps there'll be a honeymoon period and 10 years down the track we'll be at each other's throats but if we set up a system now there's a chance that maybe things will work a bit better 10 years down the track i suggest around 10 minutes down the track tim and ken cowley was 
uh, interviewed on the radio and they another big selling point was there would be no weak teams because everyone would you know every team would be stacked with great players and there'd be no more haves and have nots and Ken Kelly was interviewed on this and, and asked but you know there'll still be strong teams and weak teams you know you've got Canberra and Brisbane and you've got the Cowboys you know how do you square that and Ken Kelly said that that won't be the case because all the chief executives are so committed to the Super League cause that they'd be prepared to release certain players to ensure an even distribution of playing talent. I think Ken Kelly's grossly overestimated the commitment to the cause. (laughs) And the the way Super League talks about clubs acting for the good of the game is akin to the ARL thinking that clubs would merge themselves. Yeah, it's insane. They're both guilty of the same thing. And and so, so then you go, okay, well, how are you going to achieve this point where all cl- the talents distributed equally there's got to be a draft right and that was even in the wording of the super league contract uh so players didn't sign to clubs they signed to super league and one section of their super league contracts uh read like this the super league player shall play rugby league football in such teams of the employer or any other super league employer or a team included in any other competition as the super league employer may nominate so it was forced uh forced service yeah so and, and that got people talking well okay there's got to be a draft then everyone involved in super league was no no there's no draft no one will be forced to play where they don't want to play so no draft uh but john rebo said that there will be some more players to come and some reallocation so no draft but uh reallocation so much like Red gum got reallocated to Vietnam. <laughs> I I think uh, April Fool's Day is the day that Frankie kicked the mine. <laughs> That's it. But this was okay when there's money flying around. Everyone's got double your wages. Yeah, I'll go to Adelaide, sure. Mm. But when the money was when it all equaled out, no one's going to Adelaide. Yeah, and and so players were going to get um, you know compensation to go to the go to places like Adelaide. That was part of it. And I think a little bit too much of it was made of it in the media, especially coming from the ARL side for obvious reasons. But there was this idea that they were, you know, going to, you know, players were going to be shuffled off to any club and they'd have no say in what they were playing and they'd have no say in who they were playing for. And and that was a, an easy thing for the ARL to sell because it was right there in the contract. In reality, I don't think you would have it would have been in anyone's interest to ship Alan Langer to Adelaide. I don't think that was happening. But as David Page said in the Rugby League Week, why would they secure the contractual right to shuffle players like cards if they weren't going to exercise it? Well, that's actually to have it in hand if you needed to. To have it in hand, but it's also when you've got all this, like you want to make all the clubs strong. Like it's kind of Chekhov's contract. Yeah, I think they probably would have, but it's, I mean, um, I think that they'll be treating it with kid gloves at the start. Yeah, and and yeah, and that, that ties into the next thing I wanted to say about this is there was this idea that Super League's big aim was to break up Brisbane and Canberra. So this comment from the Herald is typical. Super League people are especially keen to break up the Broncos in Canberra and spread the talent around. They feel if these two clubs aren't divided up, they'll continue to dominate and the competition will be no stronger than the ARL setup. Like, would that have really been in their best interests? I don't think that's the case. I think they were using those as the crown jewels. Exactly. So why would you dilute the two best clubs who, appointment viewing anytime they played each other, a marketer's dreams to have all these, like, all-time players in the one jersey... In a general conversation about the salary cap, I'm a devotee of it. I believe you are too. Yeah. What we've got in the current game is quite even now. And we look back at these two squads with such fondness. We don't have these dynasties anymore. No. What do you think? Do you think it's we're better off? I I think to a point, but then 
you also get a situation. I, th- I, th- I don't think it's the case in the last couple of years, but I felt maybe three or four years ago that you had this really even competition, but there was a bit of mediocrity to it. Yeah. Where there were no truly outstanding That's teams. what I mean. It's, it's like, oh, I think overall we're better off, but it's kind of uh, feeling nostalgia thinking of these two Super Yeah, teams. yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and the other point of it is, why would Super League go out of their way to hurt the two clubs most intr- instrumental and most critical to the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so reallocation did occur. It was generally to, you know, players a lot lower down the rungs. You know, when the time comes, we'll do a, a full breakdown of who went where, but we're a long way from there. So we'll just move on. So that was one of the negative aspects of the contracts. It was very unclear as to where players could end up. That same wording made it unclear whether they would even be playing rugby league. <laughs> so... Uh, this, for, for a shelf company. Yeah. So this statement in, in the Star League contract caused a bit of furor in the press that Super League was planning to merge Rugby League and Rugby Union or invent a completely new game. The Super League player shall play Rugby League football in accordance with the rules of the game applicable at the time. Now, this is ridiculous, right? This is absolute hysteria. Any good lawyer is supposed to cover any future potential uh, need with a clause. So if the game did happen to change somehow in you know, 10 years' time or whatever, yep. there's a clause here to cover it. Mm. That's all it is. They're not saying, like, we're going to create this Frankenstein. <laughs> and John Rebo came out and said as much. He said that would be suicidal, which sums it up pretty neatly. <laughs> but then you have Paul Morgan on record as wanting to merge the codes. Well, I want to merge the codes too. I just want to merge Union into League. Well, I, I wanted to, to touch on a, an aspect of your uh, rugby league vision at, at this point. So this kind of ties into to your dream of the rugby league future of teams of 10 players who are all six foot three and <laughs> Olympic class sprinters. Like, do you still see that as the... <laughs> Um, I consider myself a visionary. For the listeners that weren't aware of this story, I uh, I had to do a project in year seven or something. It was something about the future. What, what do you see in the future? And I said, I, I see the game being streamlined. <laughs> the game, we didn't even call it rugby league. <laughs> I assumed that teacher knew about it, but uh, that, that all the players would be uh, built like Paul Harrigan, but run like Brett Mullins and it'd be a lot faster and stronger. And I think I've been vindicated. <laughs> So those were the the negative aspects of the contracts as they were sold in the press. But there was certainly a lot of positives for the players that made it very easy for them to get on board. So we've talked about some of these already. This was essentially the beginning of absolute professionalism of rugby league players. It's astounding that it was only just happening in the middle of this civil war. And yeah, it it really is. It's it's hard to grapple with now. Think about that, like training twice a week era and a year later they're giving you 500,000 to sign on and just think about how good these players were yeah in this part-time era (laughs) you know so not only just the base contracts and that side of things but the super league concept had a a revenue sharing thing in mind where you know players would would get a fair percentage of all the prize money bonuses for you know the television rights for gate receipts all that thing was built in on top of things that it's staggering to me that they weren't commonplace, superannuation. This is what I'm saying. Like, I do not blame the players one bit for signing on for any of these because for too long they've been subsidizing the inefficiency of yeah. the league. Mm. 
compare this to other sports, professional sports, about the piece of the pie they got. Like, have a look at like American sports, how much money they get yeah. percentage-wise out yeah. of the pie. Well, actually, reading about all this, it made me think of uh, cricket in the 70s. I'm not talking about World Series cricket. I'm talking about the events leading up to that. So um, brilliant documentary, Cricket in the 70s, came out, I don't know, probably 15, 20 years ago. And Ian Chappell's being interviewed about Don Bradman, who was then you know, chairman of the Australian He wasn't board. fond of the Don. Not fond of the Don. And this is the era, like, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, trashing Don Bradman has become our national sport just about. Not for me, it's not. But at this point in time, um, Don Bradman had only just died in the last couple of years. And I had never heard anyone say a word against Donald Bradman. And now suddenly Ian Chappell's been interviewed I can't remember what the grievance was, but it was something like compensation for injury or payment while a player was unable to work, not play cricket, but unable to work because of cricketing injuries. Took that to Donald Bradman and Ian Chappell said, oh, and he was just like, oh, no, no, son, we can't do that. And just really dismissive of any rights that the players had or, you know, the money they were bringing into the game. was exactly equivalent to the ARL attitude of like, it's always been done this way, why are you talking to me? Yeah. And just like Ken Arthurson and the ARL, like I don't think Donald Bradman was, you know, sitting there counting his money and, and thinking about, you know, how he was going to stuff the players. All he thought about was cricket. Yeah. And this is the way it always was. Yeah. This works for us, so that's how it's got to be. Like I think the ARL, it was the same kind of thing. So it's pretty clear it wasn't always as simple as players just wanting more money and bigger contracts. I mean, there was plenty of that in the air as well, but it was definitely an easy sell for the players. It's a $2 shell company, but you get all these benefits. (laughs) Uh, So the last part of the vision I want to talk about is uh, something of an intangible. And I'm just going to read this John Rebo quote from the 1st of May, 1995, which sums it up pretty neatly. What we're going to package up and put out there is going to be so good. It's going to have the sizzle about it. That's up there with rugby league's never been more ritzy. <laughs> what a great rugby league uh, word, sizzle. So this this intangible is something that was obviously apparent from the earliest days of discussion about Super League and Super League marketing, that this was going to look and feel different to rugby league as it was then known. And how you responded to this this aspect of it went a long way to determining how you felt about Super League as a whole. <laughs> I just makes me laugh because, like, considering like in recent times the the union interloper David Smith and his e cubed uh, yeah. idea, you know, any anytime anyone mentions bringing in some pizzazz, yeah. probably people just go, ugh. <laughs> As we've seen from this uh, this Super League and this news limited iteration of David Smith, anytime a David Smith says anything, <laughs> that seems to be the rugby league people's reaction. <laughs> So I think in our mailbag episode, we had, uh, you know, back and forth about how we felt about this marketing. So I don't want to relitigate that. So maybe unless you have anything else to add, we'll just move on to the next section. Well, I just want to bring it up again. It's like they're trying to make it better, trying to make it more professional. What are the ARL doing? You know, sitting there putting poker machines in clubs like this. Like if you haven't got a better solution, shut your trap. Yeah. I mean, it's good to have a vision, but when it's the the, <laughs> the wrong vision or a, a vision not fitting the culture of the game. But what what could they do? Could they? How can they keep the culture and move with the times? It's like it, it's a tough one. But when what they pitched was so what's the soulless? I, I found the, yeah. the, the 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 marketing of it just soulless. I didn't feel there was any 
any identity or any personality behind it. Yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. I really do. It's just, I don't know what, if you want to change it to something new and fresh, there's got to be some change. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're already breaking with tradition in so many ways, yeah, don't you have to keep some of that? Well, I think that's what we come, come to the conclusion last debate was that the ARL was pathetically trying to uh, change in a reactionary way to catch up. Yeah. And the news was somehow moving entirely away from the roots of the game yeah. when they should have both been meeting in the middle. Mm. Meeting in the middle. So, <laughs> uh, it's all about pay TV, you know? <laughs> so with that, with the, the vision established, I want to pick up where we left off, which is the week before it all went down. Uh, and, and as we get into that, I just want to note the title of this chapter, Blitzkrieg. Uh, when I was going through my notes, I discovered that Mike Coleman's Super League book named his corresponding chapter Blitzkrieg as well. And when I discovered that, I, I really thought about trying to change it. But in the end, I, I decided that nothing I could come up with so neatly captured the way the April 1st raid went down. And well, you're crediting Mr. Coleman, so yeah, fine. And and really, it was in internal memos from News Limited. It was always part of their battle plan. I hate corporate culture so much. <laughs> I think they're like comparing their like money grabbing to like war. <laughs> Interesting, they chose a, a you know Nazi <laughs> strategy. <for them. laughs> I wonder if they blue skied any of these plans. <laughs> Uh, so there, there was a whiteboard involved, which we'll talk about <laughs> at length uh, in, in the next episode. But so before we get to that April Fool's Day raid, there was a lot of pieces that had to be put into place. So basically from the time that they got approval from Rupert Murdoch onwards, they had a week to get this thing together. A lot of the logistical moves had already you know, been set up, but now there were the, the real action points that were going to make it feasible to get this all done in time. So the first of that was signing up the coaches. So basically from the 28th of March through the next couple of days, they went out and got uh, you know, Tim Sheens, Bennett, John Money, uh, John Lang. And in most cases, this was with the knowledge and cooperation of the club officials. It's funny that John Money was such a big name back then. Yeah, and at, at that point he was, you know, coming off, you know, lengthy success at Wigan, won a premiership with Parramatta. So I remember that being a big signing. Yeah. And and again, you can't blame him too much for how it all went down. Uh, with with that early Warriors team, but certainly uh, Matthew Ridge's book, which uh, has some absolute gold uh, <laughs> that will come up over our next few chapters. Uh, he wasn't a fan of, of Money <laughs> as a coach. So interestingly, on the original list of coaches who they were going to uh, target for that week, Malcolm Reilly was one of those names, and then his name was later crossed off. So I, I don't know the exact details of why uh, he was eventually left out so news had been in deep conversations with the newcastle board who as we'll get to when we have our newcastle episode which is going to be one of our uh better ones i think uh newcastle the board of newcastle were, were as john rebo said in it up to their eyeballs that is the key piece if that fell i shudder to think where uh mr arthurson would be now so again i don't have the answer of why exactly they didn't approach really but basically a meeting was held where really was offered a contract said he'd think about it and that was basically the last either party heard of it until the shit hit the fan so maybe something about his body language at the meeting or they had second thoughts about his 
relationship with Arco. Well, I think that his body language at every meeting would be aggressive. <laughs> he's the world's hardest man. But there's the old story in Newcastle where he offered to fight Mark Sargent when he was about 55. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Sargent not being a soft man. Uh, so, as I said, in most cases, the, the clubs were deeply involved, even though clubs weren't being signed at this point. So the idea from Super League was to get the coaches first. They would have you know, some influence over the players. The coaches could do a lot of the pitch and then sign the players up that way. Quite ingenious, really. I think we're going to get into the flaws of the plan next week. And I I think ingenious in some ways, but it it harmed them in some other ways. I'm sort of going off the relationship between Sheens and and Sticky and that sort of thing, but they revered him. Yeah, yeah. And certainly the same was true of Bennett and, you know, Chris Anderson. Uh, So it it definitely worked. But even though uh, only the coaches were being signed up, the, the clubs were club officials were definitely in the mix. And I want to talk about Peter Gow as an example of this. So he was uh, the Cronulla boss uh, and just comes across as a real snake. <laughs> um, Peter Gow, father of Eleanor. Yes. Yes. Fa- father of El McPherson, uh, of course. Father of the greatest rugby league incident of all time as well. <laughs> we're not going to bring it up. <laughs> so there'd been a lot of talk about his involvement in Super League uh, and Ken Arthurson wanted to to clear the air. So he asked Bob Abbott, uh, an- another official at the ARL who had close ties to Cronulla, and Abbott said, no, there's no way Gow's involved. <laughs> I'll tell you what, why don't you take him out to lunch and you two can talk it out. So Arthurson did that uh, and had this to say. After my talks with him, I was totally satisfied that nothing could have been further from the truth. I believed everything he told me. He re- reiterated his loyalty to the ARL and declared he would not be involved in anything that the ARL didn't control. Control. No one could have been more apparently forthright. I get the feeling that Arco is quite easy to blindside. You just you just go, no, mate. It's all sweet. <laughs> it's it's so true because okay, so this was Peter Gow in November 1994 when the first uh, push for Super League came out. Uh, so he said that talk of Super League was very destabilizing, and we should be able to go away from this meeting with total loyalty to the ARL. To allow the game to be driven by News Corp is, I believe, a tragic error on all of our behalves. So pretty resolute there. Uh, from December 12, he commissioned a management consultant to write a report on why the Sharks should go to Super League, uh, pitched that to Ken Cowley to show that why they were a perfect candidate, and on February the 1st, formally applied for a Super League license, Bloody which up. they were guaranteed. He's not the only guy to say one thing I mean another, though. No. And then from February, he was open in the press as saying that we should consider Super League. So I don't know if if Arthurson can really reasonably be so shocked by the deception. No, <laughs> but he's just a guy who's got a good heart who takes people at face value. Yeah, N- not the sort of guy that can operate in a shark infested water. Of yeah. <laughs> and he made the same mistake with uh, Kevin Neal and Les McIntyre of the Raiders, who from the very start, yeah. like, everyone knew the Raiders were a, a key to Super League. Uh, and this was what he said about this. I had had an amicable lunch with Kevin Neal and Les McIntyre at which they had pledged their loyalty to the ARL. Les's later departure to Super League hurt me. I'd always thought of him as a fine old rug- country rugby league bloke, as solid as a rock. It's like, it's fine to think of him that way, but when all your intel, <laughs> all the... You know, everything that's out in public tells you that's not the case. <laughs> the fact I knew as a teenager. <laughs> and so I, I know it seems like we're giving short shrift to the origins of some of these clubs joining Super League. Uh, we do have an episode on Canberra coming up. Uh, we do have an episode of Canterbury. But just to touch on Canterbury, so 
Gary McIntyre was the key Bulldogs contact in those early negotiations. And in fact, in the planning documents for Super League, Peter Moore's name doesn't come up at all. Wow. So a Super League source said that there was a view that he couldn't be trusted. <laughs> A view. <laughs> uh, so, but signing the Bulldogs was critical. So th- this is what Rebo said about why it was important that he got Canterbury. So at the same time that everything was supposed to be, you know, deep undercover and, you know, Super League weren't signing anyone yet, people at the clubs were making advances, letting their players know, and even in some cases making advances outside of their club. So for instance, and this is where you, you have to take the account that you want to believe. And I I think I know where you'll feel on the veracity of this one, Andrew. But in Phil Gould's book, he said that Brad Fittler told him that Kevin Neal pulled him aside after the club played Penrith and said that Canberra wanted him and that Super League was a reality and he was going to get $500,000 a season. And Brad Fittler took that to Gould and said, you know, what do you make of all this? So the timing of that's interesting, if true. So that Canberra played Penrith on the 18th of March. So not long before it all broke down. Uh, But... In his own book, Brad Fittler said that the first he heard of Super League was a meeting at Roy Simmons's house where a Super League representative spelled out the vision to him. So that's a bit up in the air about what you want to believe. It, it is clear that Kevin Neal had at least told Laurie Daly and Ricky Stewart about it. So Kevin Neal, so Laurie Daly said that Kevin Neal told him on the Wednesday, so basically Wednesday, March 29th, he said that that's where he found out about it from Kevin Neal, that it was definitely on and we could expect action, you know, within the next couple of days. Ricky Stewart knew it a bit earlier. And again, this is Phil Gould's account. Phil Gould said that Stewart came to Sydney to watch Easts in a game, uh, in one of their early home games, and told Phil Gould that Super League was coming and would make him a free agent and he wanted to come to East and play under Phil Gould. Uh, and in, in Phil Gould's account, Ricky Stewart said, it's all in place and John Rebo is going to be chief executive. Everyone's going to be in it. And I want to know what part Packer is playing. So Ricky Stewart had obviously only been, you know, filled in on the basic details because he thought that Packer was involved, East would be involved and it was all going to work out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so when I looked at that, East's first home game in 1995 was March 19. So again, the, the timing the timing is interesting, but we should say that Stewart disputes this account and this was in fact the first of what would be many fallings out between Stewart and Phil Gould. The feud was just outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> so in Alan Langer's book, Ricky Stewart said, Gould said in his book that I approached him and I was bored. That's where me and Gould fell out. So he clearly um, discounts that any conversation like that happened. So I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of self-serving in the Phil Gould book, as you can imagine. <laughs> but I could also quite easily see that these players, like maybe, you know, their memories isn't necessarily reliable either. Yeah, but you know what? Uh, we're not the biggest Phil Gould fans in the world, but <laughs> I think he wouldn't be above enhancing a yarn. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I trust the players more. <laughs> <laughs> and so with all these preliminary moves made, that brings us to the point where we started in our introduction, Goldfield's house. Thursday, March the 30th. So the story's about to explode, but at this stage, they were still trying to keep it under wraps. You'll remember last week that when John Rebo was spotted heading into the News Limited offices, it became a big media story. Uh, so desperate to avoid a repeat of this, the office of News Limited Alliance solicitors, Atanaskovich Hartnell, became the meeting point. 
So Murdoch, Cowley, Rebo, a couple of other key operatives were there for two main reasons, planning their next moves and officially opening the raid by signing eight key Bulldogs players. So the logistics of the operation were already in place. So a lot of this was just the final run through, making sure all bases were covered. But getting the right plan in place was critical because the next action they'd take would blow their cover with the ARL. So let's talk about that next move. And that was to issue a writ to the ARL at 6pm on Thursday, March 30th, (laughs) notifying them that news would be challenging the validity of the loyalty agreements in the federal court. So the argument was that they constituted a breach of the Trade Practices Act. Uh, So this action was filed against the New South Wales Rugby League, the ARL, and six Winfield Cup clubs who either were or was believed would support them, Brisbane, Canberra, Canterbury, Cronulla, Newcastle, and the Western Reds. So I don't know exactly why filing that action against them helped the cause, but regardless, it confirmed for the ARL that those clubs were involved with it. And the ARL heard the news just as they were getting ready to go, ironically, across the road from where the News Limited people were holed up to the rocks for Paul Broughton's birthday dinner. And that obviously became the focus of the evening with, you know, everyone on their phone. Well, actually, they wouldn't have had phones back then. Everyone on the payphone. But a, a lot of talk about what was to come. And now it was clear that there was to be no going back. Super League was definitely on and they had to think about their next moves. So this is another example of the loyalty agreements coming back to bite the ARL. On the one hand, news were always going to find a way to proceed with Super League, and it was probably always going to end up before the courts. But these loyalty agreements became the basis of all the legal arguments for the next year, and I think it's noteworthy to think about that. Yeah, created their own noose almost. Yeah, obviously we've got a long way to get to the court case, but it's crazy that the original judgment and the appeal could have two such wildly different views on the validity of those contracts. I'm still in awe of how these things happen in uh, especially civil matters. Mm. But the higher you get up the chain, like you're dealing with like you know, immortals of the law game. <laughs> so you got, you got to take the higher ones view. Well, funnily enough, all the QCs on both sides all went to Sydney Grammar pretty much within a few years of yeah, each other. Right. But I, I, one of my favourite things is the, the way rugby league people with no legal training comment on le- <laughs> complex legal matters about how a court case is likely to pan out. And when they use like rugby league terms to do so, it's even better. <laughs> so um, this this was a, a Sherlock column in the rugby league week. A very strong opinion around town seems to be that the News Limited challenge to the ARL loyalty clauses comes under the headline bluff. The mail is very strong that news are widely given no hope of winning the federal court tussle. <laughs> like where did this mail come <laughs> from? Mail. <laughs> uh, and the same is true when, when John Rebo was talking about the Super League contracts in the wake of players backing out of them, saying that they were nuclear proof. <laughs> so that writ served. It was 6 p.m. And the next step was to sign up the Bulldogs or sign up eight key players. So Chris Anderson, who had already signed, uh, finished Bulldogs training and told eight key players that they were heading to the city to uh, talk to News Limited. So Chris Anderson was offered a state-of-the-art coffin to sleep in. <laughs> so the eight players were Jared McCracken, Dean Pay, Jason Smith, Jim Dimmick, Simon Gillies, Darren Britt, Daryl Halligan, and Terry Lamb. Shout out to friend of the show, Nick Tedeschi. This is going to be a hard, uh, <laughs> hard episode for you, my friend. So John Rebo and Lachlan Murdoch were there to outline the vision to them. Then they were given beer and pizza, told to wait in a common room, and one by one, 
they went in to be offered these contracts. Something as simple as giving people beer and pizza <laughs> like, is actually an inducement. Like, yeah. <laughs> for rugby league players, like, we gave us beer and pizza, it was all right. <laughs> and so with encouragement from Anderson, most of them signed by the spot, we're going to look into that in a lot more detail when we come to our Filthy Four episode, <laughs> which uh, is, is a while down the track. Uh, but one thing I want to touch on, Terry Lamb went in and told them he was retiring, so there's no point talking to him. So they... What a dumb idea that was. <laughs> uh, but so they they immediately offered him a $100,000 contract as a player's liaison officer, which was you know a lot more than he had going which was a lot more than he had on the table by retiring. So they knew from the start that getting Terry Lamb was a big part of getting the rest of the Bulldogs. And after the players were signed, Rebo gave them an insight as to what the next, what the rest of the weekend had in store. So he said that we'll have the Auckland Warriors tomorrow night and then claimed that 100 players will be signed by the end of the weekend. So with that done, they headed back to Brisbane and signed Alan Langer on the Friday morning. But what gets me is, you're taking the word on you know your coaches and these executives, but what they're saying, what happens if it doesn't get up? What do I do then? Like, it's a $2 shelf company. <laughs> but do they, they just signed up without asking any questions? Like... And this becomes a big part of the argument that someone like Jared McCracken would make, that he didn't have his agent, he didn't have any legal representation. He was basically just told, told here's the contract, it, it's really good for you, sign it. And yeah, fair enough too. When, we're gonna, when we look at the, the flaws in the News Limited plan, this is definitely one of them that would come back to haunt them. But I, I blame the players as much as like, if someone said to me, you've got like seven years left of this lucrative career, sign with us, and I'll be like, well, what happens if it doesn't get up? Do I just not, not play for seven years or am I blackballed? Yeah, and I mean mean, that's why it wasn't the capitulation that News Limited were expecting because a lot of players did have those reservations but at the same time when you've got Lachlan Murdoch in the room you've got a pretty fair idea that the money is legit and you're going to get it yeah I I don't doubt that part of it Uh, but in terms of the will they have a game to play yeah and and will it impact the rest of my career and you know they're seen as to sign up for a few bucks and Mm. Caution of the wind, as it were. Yeah, and and that's another reason to get the coach on board first. Yeah, because if you've got your coach, someone you respect, saying this is legit, it's going to happen. This guy's signed too. This player's signed. Well, too. you know what? That, that's it right there, then, because you know the, the, you, you could tell a rugby player, especially in those days, anything. If you're the coach, they're like, well, you know, Shanzy said it. Yeah. So. <laughs> so the next big step after signing Langer and preparing for the April Fool's Day assault was for John Rebo to formally resign as Brisbane chief executive. So this is something that had happened in actuality a week before, but they made a big show of staging a resignation in the press. In the, the Sunday Mail, Paul Morgan was quoted as saying how surprised he was that Rebo had done it, like it, it came out of nowhere. So the story broke on the Friday, the Friday night, uh, Brisbane were playing the Crushers and they asked Paul Morgan about it and he said, well, as far as I know, he's taken a week's personal leave. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> Why do they insist on lying about the stuff it doesn't need to be lied about? This is what I, I wanted to talk to you about. There's something I find so craven about Paul Morgan and the way he basically just like hung Rebo out to dry, let Rebo take all the public fallout while he like issued all these denials and said, we're we're not involved in Super League and, you know, like all the rest of it. Letting Rebo be the public face for the level of vitriol and like hatred. And I, I should say, I don't think anyone on the News Limited side were prepared 
for how ugly it was going to get. They should have been prepared, knowing rugby league, but maybe Rebo took it upon himself to say, I'll take the heat. I don't know. Yeah, and definitely, uh, you know, Rebo spoke glowingly of Paul Morgan to the latter's dying day. So there was no, you know, feud or, or bitterness there. But when Rebo's wearing it all, and then Paul Morgan, months later, after hiding in the shadows, comes out bragging about being the architect of Super League, <laughs> yeah, yeah. when it's pretty clear that Rebo was doing all the work anyway. <laughs> I mean, the more we go along, the more I admire him. But like, he took that beating in the the public beating like a man. Yeah, and I understand there's an expedience to what Paul Morgan was doing. So the pl- teams were already being threatened with getting kicked out of the competition for 1995 for signing. So it wouldn't have been in anyone at Brisbane's interest for the club to be publicly admitting that they were a part of it. But when everyone knew they were a part of it, <laughs> what does it really matter? Yeah, you yeah. Know? It, was a, it was an era of the false denial. It was, oh God. Uh, and and this, this move of Rebo taking on the position as Super League chief executive was met with some, you know, cynicism in the press with uh, with a Rugby League Week column saying, I'm told on the very best authority that News Limited gave the above-mentioned Rebo a million good reasons why he should sign on the dotted line. All of them were dollars per year. So I don't think that's unreasonable even by 1995 terms for a chief executive <laughs> yeah, yeah. of a sporting organisation to get a million dollars a year. What's he supposed to do to still for free? Yeah. Uh, and it, but it just shows you that the way the traditional rugby league mind works, you know, a million dollars a year. <laughs> I'm living out of tins. <laughs> to quote one of your favourite. <laughs> but on Rebo taking that step and talking about the decision to move from Broncos club boss to uh, News Limited chief executive, I just wanted to to read this quote and. Just talk a bit about the way we've spoken to, about Rebo to date. Why would I do anything to harm the game? I had a very cushy job in Brisbane. They looked after me financially. I have a shareholding in the company. There was no reason for me to change. Everything was fine. But if you look at where we're going, there were all these warning signs out there. If they were left to go along a natural course, we might never game in the future. It's been hard, but I feel very good about what we are doing. Rugby league is our core business. And if you looked at where rugby league was going, you said, hang on, we got some problems here. To sustain yourself these days, a club needs to turn over a minimum of $100,000 per game. Some clubs are drawing 2,000 odd paying customers. You can't live like that. To me, this reading a statement like that and seeing a lot of sense in it, I feel that Rebo and Arthur are two sides of the same coin yeah in that rugby league was arco's entire life you could see that everything that rebo did was out of love for rugby league and i don't think that's true of many people on either side whether it's the you know pay tv warlords the you know news limited you know money people whether it's the club officials just protecting their own gravy trains i think there's very few people that were acting out of what they thought the best interests were were for rugby league. You got these two guys, I think you hit an hour right on the head. These two guys, in their minds, doing the right thing, whereas clubs are sort of protecting their little d- patch, their domain. We'll go where it's best for us, you know, that type of thing. I think you're dead right. But then on the other side, it comes back to this idea of good intentions, which we talked about last week. Ken Cowley didn't want to stuff up the game. You know, that's the last <laughs> thing he wanted, you know. John Rebo loved rugby league. Ken Arthurson loved rugby league to death. That quote's been on my mind, by the way, since that episode about not wanting to stuff the game yeah. up. It seems like a really good bloke. Yeah, ev- and, everyone says so. And he's probably sitting at home with a can of two of his news, just shaking his head, rocking back and forth, going, what did we do? Yeah. Still. And there are quotes from pretty early on 
on in the piece, you know, expressing regret for the way it all played out. But what's the good of these good intentions? What's the good of this regret? (laughs) And I'm not like blaming anyone, but it's just like, I don't know what to say about it. (laughs) Empty platitudes, really. And so with all that done, there was one final step and that was to inform the press. So just as this was all going on on the afternoon of March 30, Peter Falingos and Phil Rothfield were called into the office of the editor-in-chief, John Hardigan, uh, and they were told that News Limited had just launched court action against the ARL and the New South Wales Rugby League. They came out of the office and Rothfield was asked by a colleague what that was all about, to which he replied, Super League, it's on. Wow. And that's where we leave this week's episode. So we'll be back for what was on next week. And my God, there's a lot that happened in that weekend. Chills on that comment. So uh, again, as always, please uh, let us know what you thought about this episode. Anything we had to say, the rugby league digest at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. As I said, welcome corrections or any additions you can uh, give to our story. Uh, would love to hear it. And please pass on the uh, the podcast to any of your relatives and friends that are into rugby league history buffs in general we're on youtube for the oldies keep pushing that yeah please do i I love that personal touch actually you know tell some people about us in addition to the ratings and reviews on apple Podcasts, which really help uh we'd love to have this conversation go you know a bit more widespread in in the rugby league community so please um tell your friends uh as always to close the show i'm just going to give a book plug for the week uh this time i'm going to go with paul malone's book al uh the alan langer biography Great (laughs) This book is much better and more insightful than it has any right to be. (laughs) Like even looking at the cover, which is the way to judge books, of course, uh, (laughs) it just looks like the classic piece of rugby league garbage, you know, put out before Christmas for for the dads. But it, it actually gets some really great quotes and goes into some unexpected detail about Super League and beyond. So um, I really enjoyed it too. It, it was a nice surprise to pick up that book and actually get something out of it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Paul Malone, Alf. Uh, okay, so we will speak to you next week. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns